All right, good morning everybody. It's good to see you here today. And uh, so we are going to start off by asking some questions, but I want to have you turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And what we want to do here is uh, I want you to talk with me and answer some questions in regards to what is important. Now, we're not talking about whether Cheyenne Frontier Days is important or what kind of restaurant you go to. We're not talking about that. We're talking about biblical doctrine. But let's read Acts chapter 13 and verse 48 to begin with. Actually, let's go back and start at verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. He's speaking to the Jews here. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So here's the question that we want to start off with this morning. What do you believe and why is it important? We've been talking about the attributes of God and we are now on the foreknowledge of God or the word foreknowledge. And there are some things that have been that that have created great theological or church or ecclesiastical battles down through the ages. One person has disagreed with this person, and you can go back. It doesn't matter whether where it's at. It doesn't matter whether it's Jacobus Arminius and John Calvin, or whether it's uh, Spurgeon and the downgrade controversy, or whether it's John Wesley and George Whitfield, who were on two completely different spectrums when it came to biblical theology, and yet they actually ministered together. They served the Lord together and actually spent time ministering both in England as well as here in the United States. But here is the question that we want to ask in regards to what do we believe? In other words, what is it that is important? And what I want to do here is, as I want to define, we've got some things that we would consider to be primary doctrine, some that would be secondary and some that would be tertiary, or what is called tertiary. This simply means three, or a third level doctrine. What are some doctrines that you would describe based on your knowledge of the scripture? What are some things that we would say you must hold to a primary doctrine, otherwise we can't fellowship together? Ah, good one. Okay. The Trinity. Salvation by grace. Okay, hold on just a second. Can't write quite that fast. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Okay, now here is salvation actually falls. There are two main thoughts here. One is called, and I'm going to give you several words today, maybe that you've never heard before. And I encourage you to write them down. You can study them for yourself because I want you to see that what the scriptures say is true, and I want you to be able to define it. If 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, be ready always to give what? 
and answer to everyone who asks you of the reason of the hope that is in you, but do it with, no, meekness and fear. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I remember my dad telling me years ago, he says, son, he says, you can have a position that is right, but if your disposition is wrong, you invalidate your position. And there are a lot of people that can argue till the, till the cows come home over various points of doctrine, but if we don't do it with love, with meekness, with fear, with humility of heart and mind, we are not doing justice to the scriptures. Now, these two words here, does anybody know what these two words are? What does it say? Monergism and synergism. Anybody know? Mr. Samuel? Um, give me a one. Give me a one-sentence definition of both of these. Monogism would be God alone. Synergism says that we are saved by a combination of our works with Christ's works, and it basically makes us co-redemptors. God alone and with man. Okay, so we hold to monergism here. This is a Baptist. It is a historic Baptist teaching and doctrine. And monergism simply says salvation, what Brother Ed said, salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, nothing that we can do to be able to add to it. That's monergism. In other words, when God set his eternal love on us and looked down through time, he didn't look down through time, I'm sorry, Mr. Mike, and save you because he saw something in you that he just had to have to make him more God. Okay? I'm positive. (laughs) I am positive. Now, the difference, the Greek word here for synergism, sin meaning with, not sin as in iniquity or or bad things that we do, but synergism is with man. We also have this word syncretism, which syncretism is found, for example, in a lot of Middle East or in in, uh, Central or South American countries where the Roman Catholic Church system came into these countries particularly in places like Peru and Colombia. And the priests at the point of the sword by the soldiers would say, okay, we're going to sprinkle all of you. We're going to make all of you Christians. And what you do from Monday through Saturday, you can live any way you want to. You can practice whatever religion you want. You can worship whoever you want as long as you're here on Sunday and you listen to the mass. Okay? Yes. Like the Roman Empire, uh, you can do what you want to do, but long as you pay your tax. Yes. Yeah. Well, for example, when Constantine, who actually founded the Roman Catholic Church, it wasn't built on Peter, but the Roman Catholic Church was actually built on Constantine in 341, who supposedly saw a, a sign in the sky that looked something like this. Some of you may not be able to see this. Something like this. Okay? And when he saw that sign supposedly in the, in the, in the sky, he said he took 100,000 Roman soldiers, took them down to the river, and had a priest, a pagan priest, bless the soldiers and said, you're all Christians now. That's syncretism. Okay? So... What we have done is we have gone, and this is the problem with things like social gospel. When we add to, for example, uh, there are a lot of mission organizations throughout the world, and they go and they'll build wells, they'll build schools, they'll provide 
clothing and, and all kinds of stuff for people. And that's one of the things that I like about Operation Christmas Child. When they go into a foreign country and they take all of these Christmas shoe boxes that are going there, we're not just giving gifts, we're actually including the gospel message in that box. We're teaching these children, it's not about the gift, it's about the giver. So when we're talking again about the difference between monergism and synergism, we have to ask ourselves, did God do all the work or is there something that we have to do to be able to contribute? Because if we have to do something to contribute, the question we then ask is this, how much does Mike have to do versus Samuel versus me versus Sister Janice versus Doug versus Mickey versus whoever it may be, how much is enough for God to finally accept you. Is there an amount? What if I give twice as much as you do on a Sunday? What if I, whatever it may be, fill in the blank. What if, I, what if I'm a good Samaritan every single day or I help people every single day and you don't, but you do something else? How do we know whether your good works compare to my good works? They, they don't um, because God sees one thing that you are a child of his and those works that you're talking about come about because God, you love God. Absolutely. Not because you have to do something, yep. but because you love God. And so there's no comparison. You no. Well, that's what you have with James and the book of Romans. There's no, there's, no, uh, there, there's, there's no contradiction between the two. In, in Romans, you have Paul teaching that salvation is by grace through faith alone and no works. But then you get to James and James says, well, if you don't have any works, you're not saved. Is James saying something completely different than Paul? No. What he's saying is that what you just said, if you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your works will become evident to everybody around. Now, here's, here's another question for you. Is everybody a child of God? Think about that. Not in the world. No. Not in the world. A, and that's where the word adoption is very important. In yes. Is you are adopted. Yes. That means God has to accept your adoption. Or, or a, um, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. So, so the adoption that is done by the Lord Jesus Christ, we were talking about this in the prayer time this morning. Here's the way in, in, the, in the New Testament age under Roman law, when Paul writes and uses the word adoption, the Roman, the Roman and the Jewish believers would have understood Roman law. And, and here's what you have to understand. Let's, let's use Brother Sam as an example because he's, he's about the youngest person here. I'm not talking about the little ones here, okay? Uh, but let's actually know Samuel is. You're about the age of my boys. I'll use Samuel and I'll use Samuel too. Oh, there's Sterling. There's Sterling. Uh, there we go. I didn't see him. He's yeah. They kind of camouflage together back there on the back row. So here, here's the way that they would have understood that when they're reading, because context is everything. So Sterling is my natural-born son, third child, okay? Under Roman law, if he did something that upset me, that bothered me in any way whatsoever, I could actually disassociate from him and he would, under Roman law, no longer be considered my son, okay? Now, 
As a general rule, though, once a child became 12 years old, they were eligible under Roman law to be adopted. They could be adopted within the same family, or we could say, we could go and I could say, well, Samuel over here, by the way, not to confuse anything, but Trenton in the back, one of his middle names is also Samuel. Okay? So, but we're going to take Samuel over here, and I say, as, as he's growing up, he's, a, he's a young, growing up into a young man. He's a teacher. Anybody here seen Ben-Hur? The movie Ben-Hur? The good one with Charlton Heston. Okay. So what I would do is I would take him to court and I would say, I want Samuel to be my forever son, my adopted son under Roman law. If I went through the entire process to adopt Samuel, there is nothing that Samuel could do to be unadopted ever in my family. That's what Paul is talking about when he says the adoption of sons. In other words, there's nothing that we could do. Uh, somebody mentioned it uh, this morning downstairs, again in the prayer room, uh, they're talking about our two girls. And they asked them, did you love your parents when they adopted you? They didn't even know who we were. We knew about them probably seven or eight months before we actually got them in our home. We had set our love upon them, and that's the way it is with God. He sets his love upon us, his eternal love, before we ever come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I want you for one of my children. This, again, is the wonder of salvation. And again, breaks it down here. Monergism. Mono meaning singular or alone. It is because of God. And then synergism with man. Again, I am glad that we don't serve a God or that we do not have a belief system that says, I've got to do this or that or the other. Amen. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not... I am not criticizing if you hold or if you are part of a different uh, church or you belong to a different denomination. It doesn't matter whether you're LDS or whether you're Mormon or whatever you may be. The problem is not you. The problem is the system that a person believes in if it does not point to Jesus Christ alone. So when we're talking about these doctrines, again, let's go back up here. What is important? The Trinity. Can a person come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if they do not believe in a triune God? Yes. Explain. When I got saved, I knew Jesus was the Savior, the doctrine of the triune God, yep. was a foreign concept to me. Okay. Learned it later. Yeah. 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 Okay. It was a trick question. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was a trick question. Okay. So there are things, for example, the more we grow in our faith, there are a lot of things, for example, like baptism, what form of baptism, uh, and things like that, that are not a primary doctrine. Now, there are some people who believe that baptism must be performed in order for you to be a believer. Okay? Now, that, I believe, is a false teaching. It's called baptismal regeneration. The question, though, is this. If a person believes in the Trinity, can a person... That'd be a good way to put it. If... Do you believe... Let me put it this way instead. I'm trying to be very careful here with my wording. 
Do you believe that a person who is a Methodist can become a Christian? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, do you believe that a person who is a Baptist can become a Christian? <laughs> okay. Uh, we're going to get a little bit more difficult here. Is a Baptist a Christian? Is a <laughs> yeah. Here, here's another question then. Do you believe that a person who is in a Catholic church can become a Christian? Become is the word. Okay, don't get ahead of me here. Do you believe a person who is a in an LDS church can become a Christian? Wait a minute. Can become. Can become. Don't get ahead of me. Okay. Can become a Christian. Yes. Okay. So what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and he redeems that person, they have been set aside by the eternal love of the Lord Jesus Christ, what will happen after subsequent to salvation? After subsequent? After salvation. After In other words, this person, whatever church they're in, the Spirit's going to teach them. They're going to te- have a desire to study the Word. They're going to see things that they never understood before. And they're going to come to a better knowledge of who God is, who Christ is, and so on. And then they're going to see the conflict in the system they're in. And that's happened in uh, some Catholics. Yes. Uh, you know, they've gotten saved. Well, gee, we can think of uh, Martin Luther. I mean, come on. Sure. They read it and they saw sure. the conflict. Yeah. So they can be saved in those churches because the Holy Spirit can do His work wherever. And then, for example, the the the, the LDS Church belief their belief system. For example, do you know that over sixty five percent of the Book of Mormon actually was plagiarized directly out of the King James Version? Yes. Yes. Okay. So if you ha- anybody here ever read the Book of Mormon? Yeah, okay. So I have read through the Book of Mormon twice in my life, okay? A lot of it is just mind-blowing. It's, I mean, uh, whether it's holy underwear or God living on a planet Kolob or whatever, there are a lot of crazy things that they believe. But there is enough truth that is in there that you can point to somebody and say, wait a minute, if this was copied from the King James Bible or the authorized version whatever version it is that they're going to read, my recommendation, if I meet up with somebody who is of Mormon faith, I am not going to argue with them from the Book of Mormon. I'm going to send them to the scriptures and say, read the scriptures as a little child. Start with the New Testament. I don't want to point them to more false doctrine. I want to point them to the truth. And so when that person comes to, the, comes to the realization and God saves them, would they then remain within that system? They can't. They, um, exactly. They cannot remain. It, it, it's, it's like taking a child. You're a month, month, about a month away, right, Sister Aura? Okay, she's about a month away. She's ready for that third baby to be able to be born. Okay? And... When that baby is born, they're small, they're five, six, seven pounds, whatever it may be. What happens with that baby if in a year from now they come in and they're celebrating a one year and a, or the one year birthday and that baby is still five or six or seven pounds? There's something wrong. There's something wrong. Okay. 
before that. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it'd be, if, if they're still five or six or seven pounds at two or three months, there's something wrong. Yes. Because what happens, how has God designed the human body? Once that baby is born, what are they going to do? And there's nothing they can do to stop it. Grow. They're going to grow. 1 Peter 2.2 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So when we come to the scriptures, if you are studying, this is why discipleship is so important. Because when you are being discipled and you are being taught the truth, not only are you going to have an answer for everybody that asks you of the things that you believe, but you're going to be able to say, here I stand like Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. So when we are beginning to teach these things, like Brother, uh, uh, like Brother Al has said, when he came to Christ, he didn't even probably know what the word Trinity meant. Does that mean that he can't be saved? No. If, if, if I use the word transubstantiation, and I say you have to categorically deny trans or consubstantiation, otherwise you're not a believer, most of you are probably going to go, huh? Because you don't know what we're talking about. It is easy, especially from a pastoral perspective or a teacher's perspective, if we're not careful, we can start using big, long, fancy theological words instead of just breaking it down to the bare essentials or the bare minimums. But if a person is growing in the Word of God and we understand from the Scriptures that God says, God the Father, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is a biblical doctrine. Now, there is going to come a time when that person is growing, and as they are growing in their faith, they are going to be confronted with terms like Trinity or salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And they're going to have to come to the decision, either I'm going to believe God or I'm going to believe whatever it is that I've grown up in. Okay? So, for example, let's go back to the issue of baptism. Is baptism a primary teaching? Again, be careful. Is it, what? Is it a primary, uh, first level tier doctrine? No. Okay. So if I say that I believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, You're wrong. I just made that a first tier doctrine, right? So uh, there, there is a group of pastors that meet there are several different groups throughout the city but there's one particular group of pastors and they come from a number of different denominations and some of the men who were in this meeting began talking and sharing some of the things that they believed and I began to realize very quickly wait a minute how can I have fellowship with somebody with another pastor when they don't believe what I believe in regards to scripture in other words, this man over here, he walks in and he's praying to a God and he believes that he had to be baptized in order to be saved. Does he believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? No, it's based on his works. <coughs> so let's go back up here to the primary doctrines. What are some other primary doctrines? Virgin birth. Ah, there's a good one. Okay. So the virgin birth, again, going back to your question, what if somebody doesn't know it? If, if, if we're 
if we're driving along the road and right in front of you, as you're going down here, you leave from church and you're going down the road and right at the corner of Four Mile Road in Yellowstone, like happens just about every single day, somebody pulls out and they tease somebody else. The car explodes in flames. You're the first one on the scene. And this person, you manage to drag them out of the car. You know full well that they are probably going to be dead in four or five minutes. What do you tell them? You see, this is where the gospel comes in because I'm not going to teach them about transubstantiation. I'm not going to ask them to debate with me the differences between the Catholic versus the Methodist versus the Baptist versus the Presbyterian versus the LDS system. I'm not going to ask them, well, do you believe in the virgin birth? <gasps> As they're dying. What am I going to tell them? What, are you, what can you tell them if you've got just a few seconds, if you've got just a minute or two left of life, this person is getting ready to stand before God. You don't know a thing about them. You simply help them out of the car, and as they are laying there on the side of the road, they are getting, within the next, say, two or three minutes, they are going to meet God either as their judge or he's going to be their savior. What do you say? Jesus loves you. Basically that, Jesus loves you. You can only, and you probably won't get a response. You may not. You can only say, Jesus is the Savior of the world, and He is the Lord, and you just start giving them the gospel. Okay. Concise and short as possible. You give them, which is not me, because um, I'm worried. No, I, I understand. But you, you try and give them the gospel and tell them who Christ is, and you hope that it's... Okay, are we defining are we defining doctrinal we're terms with them? Anything. We're just telling them who God is, and okay. who Christ is, and He's the Savior. Let, let's go. Let's go. Let's stay with the scriptures. What does the scripture say that we can tell that person so that they may know that they can have eternal life? What does the Bible say? Romans chapter ten. Romans chapter ten. Look up Romans chapter ten. Somebody look it up. Verse nine and ten. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, hold on just a second, Samuel. I'm going to have you read the last part here in just a moment. That if thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. In other words, this is the difference between the Mormon Jesus and the biblical Jesus. Because to believe in the biblical Jesus means that we believe that he came, he died, what did he die for? To atone for the wrath of God, to pay for our sin. What's that? Substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary but again, we're not using that word, that's what we mean, that's what we're describing is substitutionary atonement, that Jesus Christ, somebody else look up 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and get ready to read verse 21. So here we are, we're sitting on the side of the road, this person is bleeding out profusely. I want to share with you, listen, I realize that in a few minutes you're probably going to go out into eternity. I'm doing everything I can to make you comfortable. But what's more important to me than anything is your soul. 
I want you to understand that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the Bible says that if you will believe in your heart that God raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, you will be saved. Guarantee. Revelation chapter 21 says, Let the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who comes drink of the water of life freely. That is the message that we give, that it is a free gift that is given by God. Read verse, t- uh, verse 10 now, Brother Samuel. For with the heart, uh, heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, you want to know what the gospel is? Who has 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21? Okay, if you don't have this verse memorized or underlined or scored in your Bible, I would do that. Because I'm going to give you, in just a matter of seconds, I'm going to give you the entire gospel message. You're on the side of the road, you're talking with this person, you're at the bedside of somebody in the hospital, they do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they say, what does it mean? It, 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 do you remember what happened in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are in the Philippian jail as Roman citizens? They were illegally there, but God allowed them to be put there because there was a man who needed to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that was the Philippian jailer and all the little Philippian jailers in his house, right? So when... The Philippian jailer is there in the middle of the night and there is an earthquake and all the doors fall open. Why is the Philippian jailer wanting to kill himself? Because he will be killed if a prisoner escapes. Okay. So Paul tells him and he cries out and Paul and Silas, by the way, are having a revival meeting. They're in there singing in the middle of the night at midnight and they're singing praises to God. They're having a truly one-of-a-kind worship service. And as they are worshiping, the Philippian jailer hears them and he calls for a light and he comes into them. And what does he say? Can you tell me how I can be a really good person? Is that what he says? Go ahead. What must I do to be saved? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Glad you could drop in because we're going to have that conversation. And here's essentially what Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If you want to understand, this verse is called the great exchange. Let me read it to you because we don't have time to break down the entire chapter. For our sake. Who is he talking to? Us, believers, for our sake, those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. There's another primary doctrine. If we do not believe, you cannot be a true Christian if you believe that Jesus was a sinner. Imputed righteousness. Again, long term. And in this verse here, let's let's continue. Let's finish the verse. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. 
Why? So that in Him, in Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel. The gospel says there was a time, Adam and Eve living in the Garden of Eden, and now we could get, we've gone through the firm foundations, for example, which was 50 weeks of chronological study. And in that, this was over a year ago, year and a half ago that we started this. But this is essentially what the gospel means. Adam and Eve sin because they sinned. Every person in the world is born a sinner. How many sins does it take to make you a sinner? Nope. Zero. Zero. You're born a sinner. I'm born a sinner. You say, well, I, I no, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. According to whose standard? Is it... I'm sorry? Exactly. Because we are not good people by our very nature. In other words, if we stood before God... And God says, why should I let you into my heaven? What is our answer going to be? And if it includes me, myself, or I in every aspect of it, you are not a believer. So we come to this verse, the great exchange. For our sake, he became sin. In other words, Jesus Christ came into the world, and yes, we understand the verse, for God so loved the world. He loved mankind. So that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 3 verse 36 though continues that those who do not believe still have the wrath of God abiding upon them. So if we look back at scripture we realize even within our own life there's only one of two possibilities. If God loves us but the wrath of God is abiding on those who are still unbelieving at one point, that means that the wrath of God was upon you and me. And if the wrath of God was upon us, there had to be something that was done in order for the wrath of God to be removed from us. And the question is, what did you do? What could you do to be able to remove the wrath of Almighty God? Let's take a quick test. Somebody read James chapter 2, verse 10. James chapter 2, verse 10. Actually, just have it ready to go. All right? So, people say, I follow the Ten Commandments. That's great. You know most people that say that they follow the Ten Commandments can't even tell you what the Ten Commandments are. Just, just, just an aside. That one was free. So, give me one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not. No other God before me. Okay, so no, no other gods. All right? Somebody else give me another one. Okay, hold on. No killing. Let's actually determine what it is. The Bible says no murder. Okay, okay no stealing. Okay, hold on. Okay. Sabbath, all right. Give me one more. False witness. Okay, false witness. Don't do it. <laughs> False witness. Okay, I, I'm going to add one more here. Um, no adultery. Okay. So by the time the Lord Jesus Christ comes on the scene, you had a bunch of religious nut jobs 
who believed that they were all keeping the law every single day because they didn't walk more than half a mile on a Sunday. And what they had done is they had reduced the law of God to mere trivialities. And so here's what the, here's what the Lord Jesus Christ said. He came along and he says, You have heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. All the Pharisees are going, Never done that. I'm a good guy. Kept the law. And Jesus says, Wait a minute. Have you ever looked at somebody with lust in your heart? Looked at somebody because you couldn't have them but wanted them in the depths of your heart? And all the Pharisees go, Ooh. And... Jesus says, eh. it's the same as having committed adultery. And then he says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. All the Pharisees are, maybe only three-fourths of them now are. Kind of slowly because they're not sure about this. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you, have you ever hated anybody? Wow, he just nailed every one of those Pharisees right between the eyes. Because the Pharisees used to pray on a regular basis, Lord, I thank you that I have not been made a Gentile, I have not been made a woman, and I have not been made a dog. Every male Pharisee. And they hated everybody that was not just like them. The Sadducees and Pharisees were of the same group of people and didn't get along. Hated each other's guts. And so Jesus says, wait a minute, have you ever hated anybody? And it's like... And Jesus says, if you have hated somebody, it is just the same as if you have murdered them. Now we could go through the rest of these. No stealing. If you ever wanted something that you couldn't have? Boy, that sure is a nice car. That sure is a nice house. Boy, I'd like to have that suit. I'd like to have whatever it may be instead of being thankful for the things that God has given us. What has God promised you and I in our lives? Food and raiment. So anything else is an additional blessing, right? Does he say how much raiment he'll give us? How much clothing? How much food he'll give us? So when you go to a third world country or places like where Brother Mickey was in the, in the Philippines, and those people are thankful if they get one meal a day and they're eating rice and fish every single day, every single week, every single month for all of their life, and they're thankful for that versus us who go to the store and can't decide on one entire 50-foot aisle how much or what kind of cereal we're going to eat. You know, there are some places in the world that are thankful if they get one meal a day, whatever it may be. And if we fall into this category, we've broken another one. What about the Sabbath? What about the Sabbath? Now, we know... That in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is our eternal Sabbath. So there's no, we don't have to worship from Friday night to Saturday night now, or Saturday night to Sunday night, or Sunday just on Sunday. We can worship any day because the the <coughs> excuse me, the scriptures are showing us that our eternal Sabbath and our rest is found in Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter where we're at, what country we're in, we can worship on whatever day it is that He allows us to worship. But the question is this, in our Sabbath or in finding our rest in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever spent time worrying? Never, okay. Well, 
You mean in the last five minutes? Yeah, exactly. Let's go last five yeah. minutes. So if we are worrying whatsoever is not of faith is sin... So if we're not placing our faith in remembering 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you, what have we essentially done right here? We've sinned. We've broken the Sabbath. So who has James chapter 2 for me? Verse 10. So we've, we've covered four of them. Uh, let's, let's do the no other gods. Has there ever been a time in your life where you have not kept Jesus Christ first in your life in every single area of your life? Okay, so now we've broken five of the laws. And again, if we've broken one, we've broken all of them. So the gospel is this. Because we have sinned, we have no way of being able to come to God on our own, not through any righteousness that we can do, because as Isaiah says, the very best we can do is as what? Filthy rags. The very best that we can do. So a person who thinks that they are a good, righteous, upstanding, or a good moral person, or because I'm an American, of course I'm a Christian. No, the Bible says that you must come to faith in Jesus Christ alone. So at the end of the day, there's only two options. Number one, either you can pay the penalty for your sin, or you can trust in God for the penalty that was paid by Jesus Christ. That's the great exchange. That's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ loved you, was willing to die for you when you were unlovable, when I was unlovable, so that when God the Father looks down from heaven, he doesn't see you in your sin. What he sees is the child of God. A child of God who has been redeemed, who has been justified, who is being sanctified and who will one day be glorified. That's the gospel message. So if somebody believes something other than that, can they be a believer? Can they be a true believer? For example, let's go back over here to the question that, that Al answered. If somebody believes one of those doctrines or doesn't believe those doctrines and we show them from scripture and they say, well, I, I just don't believe that. I still think that that God will accept me based on he'll weigh my good and my bad and 50-50 and if it's more good than bad, then God will accept me. Is that a true believer? No. No, it is not. Because the person who is a true believer has been, has been given the gift of God, the faith to believe, the grace to believe, the mercy to be forgiven and say, that person is now my child and now they are going to grow in their faith. We can't help but grow in our faith. This is why I've asked you the question. I think I asked it a couple of Sundays ago. And it's this. Is your life any different than it was six months ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, whenever it is that you believe that you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm going to probably shock some of you right now. I am convinced more and more every single week as I minister the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ 
that there are people who even come to Yellowstone Baptist Church who are not true believers. It is every church. Right, but we're we're talking about an evangelical Baptist church. And the reason is because people have the misunderstanding of what it takes in order to be able to get to heaven. There are going to be many people, as the Lord Jesus Christ says in the book of Matthew, there are going to be many people who will go to heaven and they will stand before God and God will say, depart from me for I never knew you. To me, one of the saddest verses in the entire scripture. Depart from me, for I never knew you. In other words, I didn't have a personal relationship with you. You see, if we have a personal, if we have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I will change. We can't help but change. My um, a lot of you know me anyway, but uh, I think about that. I was pondering that last night, and I was just sitting there thinking about. Sovereignty of God. And one of the things that I realized when somebody wants to realize, are you truly saved and how do you know? Well, one of the things that I realized is as of October of 2020, best year ever, anyway, <laughs> for me, is uh, it was no longer I confessed you, I did this is what God did to me. And it was very distinct because I tried for years to be a good Christian, to do all the things, failing every day in misery because I can't please you. And then that fateful night, God says, you're mine, and it's what he did. I did nothing. And... Your heart changes, and it no longer becomes I. It becomes Him. And I became His child of God. And there's, I can see the distinct difference between that time and now, from my previous life to then. Amen. That's, that's the major difference. If you were, When you come to church and we say, are there people in church that aren't saved? Yep, I was one. You know, heard the message every day. Oh, yeah, I already accepted Christ. I did that. I did that. I believed. Yeah. And my life never showed it. Until God saves you, He'll change your heart. There's nothing you can do. Um, I can't go back. And uh, I always make the joke of why would anybody want to go through the torture of being saved on their own? <laughs> you know, knowing that the world's going to hate you and laugh at you and uh, mock you or think you're crazy, you know, as my children do sometimes. Uh. You know what I find is interesting because I was there. There, I, I believe there are people who are convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit and yet have not come to faith or believe that they are confident and trusting in where they stand because they're afraid of what somebody else may think. I was in the pulpit preaching the Sunday before I got saved. And when we stop and realize that it doesn't matter, you know, the first call that I made, it was the middle of the night in England, <laughs> woke my parents up, and I said, and I was worried, I was concerned, 
you know, what would my parents think? I mean, here I was, I was a preacher, I was studying to be a preacher, I was in Bible school, I was doing all of this stuff. And the night that I actually came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I didn't care about that anymore. I didn't care about what my fiancé thought. All I was concerned about was where I stood before God. And when I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I got on my phone, I, on the phone and I called my parents, middle of the night for them, and I said, I just want you to know that I accepted the Lord as my Savior. And you know what my parents did? They rejoiced with me. Because a true believer, if you're not a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you come to faith in Him, a true believer will rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, the wonder of salvation. The book of Luke says that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Don't misunderstand that verse. The angels aren't doing the rejoicing there. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Those saints who have gone before us, I believe, know every single time that somebody comes to faith, whether they're in the Philippines or whether they're here in America or wherever they're in England or wherever they may be. And they rejoice for one more person who has been rescued from the clutches of Satan. Now, I want to show you something because we have been talking quite a bit in regards to the sin issue. Would everybody agree that you sin at least once a day? And I've used this, several of you have seen this, but I want to show it to you again. Several of you are new. Would we all agree that we sin in some way against a holy and righteous God at least one time a day? Yeah. Yep, everybody agree? Anybody disagree? Once a minute. Once, once a minute. Okay, we're going to just keep it to once a day. Yeah. Okay. So, one time a day times 365 days equals 365 sins. How many years on average do people live here in America? Let's use 70. It's an easier number to add to or to figure out, right? So 0, 5, 3, 5, 4. Carl's already used all his days up. He's used his, yeah. Okay. So this is still the number of sins, and this is just one sin a day for your entire life. Now, the Bible says to be holy, be ye holy, for I am holy, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. So if we have sinned that many times, this is what Brother Samuel said, use the word of the phrase, substitutionary atonement. This means that somebody has to pay for these sins. So either Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, and that means that this becomes a great big zero, that debt has been canceled, or you and I have to pay for that. Do you realize that if you had sinned just once in your entire life, and you were the only person that sinned, Jesus Christ would still have had to have suffered at the hands of God the Father in order to atone for that one sin. That makes you and I a murderer. We, as Peter said to the Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, you murdered the Son of God. That's pretty strong language. He obviously didn't read Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. 
And that's where we were. So if every one of these sins is murdering the Lord Jesus Christ, that means that every one of them should deserve a life sentence, right? Yeah? What is a life sentence in the judicial system here in America? <clears throat> Approximately. If, if you, it's, it's 25 years to life. Okay? So if you murder somebody, you're going to spend a minimum of 25 years for that one sin. For that one murder. Okay? Somebody have a calculator? Figure this out for us. 25,550 sins times 25 years. What is that number? 638750. 638750. So, for those who believe in a place called purgatory, this is the minimum amount of years according to our own judicial system that you're going to have to spend in hell in order to be able to atone. But here's the problem. From the moment that you arrive in hell, you will be gnashing your teeth. The word there is actually to commit fury against a holy God. That means every second you're in hell. You will add to your punishment. Your punishment can never be paid by you. This is why, this is why purgatory is a hellacious doctrine. A doctrine that, that teaches people that they can work off. Some of you may not know this, and don't forget what you were going to say, Samuel. But when John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, died in 2005, I believe it was 2005, the cardinal that gave his mass, his, the funeral mass, was a cardinal by the name of Joseph Ratzinger. Joseph Ratzinger became Pope Benedict the 16th. In his funeral eulogy, mass, homily, whatever you want to call it, he actually included in his prayer, you can look it up, it's even on the Vatican's, it's available in seven or eight different languages. But in that eulogy, he said, let us pray for our dearly beloved, our dearly departed brother and father, Pope John Paul II, that he will soon be released from the fires of purgatory into the welcoming hands of the Father. If the man at the top has no hope of going to heaven, what hope do 1.3 billion Catholics have? If the man at the top can't get there. And here's what's so sad. Everybody who believes and trusts in something other than Jesus Christ finds themselves under the same condemnation. Either you try to pay it or Jesus paid it all. Samuel? I was going to say, our judicial system is not even biblical most of the time. Because if you look at the Mosaic law and the, the penalty for murder, the penalty for murder was death. So if you consider you sinned once a day, you've got 63,000 death penalties, or 600,000 death penalties you have to pay off, and that's once in a day. Yeah. So it's like trying to pay back the tax man when you have no money. The tax man makes you money, lends you the money, and then you have to pay it back to the tax man. Uh, let, let's, let's, exactly. Let's say that a person gets angry and they're angry a minimum or they're bitter or whatever for a minimum of 10 seconds every day. That's 10 death sentences. However you slice it, no matter where you want to add it. So now we're down and we add another zero here. Now we're at 6.387 million years. 
you can't pay it. This is why we have 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, God, made Jesus to be sin for you to pay that penalty so that when God looks at us, He doesn't see this as being owed anymore. He sees you as forgiven. He sees you as redeemed. He sees you as a child of God. And the evil one can stand before God all day long and he can accuse the brethren. And all God the Father has to do is look at his son. And his son says, paid in full. That's the gospel message. That is the wonder of salvation. That is the wonder of what we believe is a monergistic salvation. It is all of God. And here's an even greater wonder. Not only does God save you, but his keeping is in, or your keeping is in his hands. This is why when we talk about the attributes of God and we talk about the holiness of God and the character of who God is, you can't get yourself saved. You can't keep yourself saved. Because every time you sin, how do you know whether God is going to come or he's going to call you home before you have time to seek forgiveness? Because you've either been forgiven or you haven't. Debbie? So why do the Catholics offer a um, mask for a dead brother or sister? What do they think that's doing? So that is that is a very good question. So for for the for the for those who are listening online or who will listen online, the question was: So why do the Catholics offer a mass for a person who has been who has passed away? Because the the Catholic and 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 please please, I don't want anybody to walk out of here and misunderstand. Half of my family is Catholic to this day. I don't hate Catholics. I hate the system that tra- has them trapped in fear. Okay. The reason that they do that is the same reason that they offer what are called indulgences. And indulgences are something that you can pay, for example, when they wear the beads or where they carry the beads, the rosary, or they have a scapula, it's a little leather pouch that has maybe some kind of icon or relic or trinket or something in there, and they can pray, they can finger that. The masses are done for the exact same reason. In that, if if a if the Catholic Church, you can go to any Catholic Church here. If you have a family member who is Catholic, you can go and you can actually pay the priest here at the local Catholic Church, and he will offer a funeral mass for your for your loved one. Any one of the Catholic churches here in town will do that. Any Catholic Church. Uh, well, to rent the space, Protestants, you pay Protestants also, right? What do you mean? For the for the space. Or you're talking about no, the, no, the, no, no. The, the, a funeral mass, a funeral mass can only be conducted by a Roman Catholic priest who is ordained in the Roman Catholic Church. So when they're actually doing the mass, what they're doing is they're putting Jesus on the cross every single time because they believe that they have the power to be able to bring him literally down, and it, the bread and the cup literally becomes literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so every time they perform a mass, whatever kind of mass it is that they have, and that, that person is trusting that, the, that the, the, the priest has the ability to be able to do that, what they are doing is they are praying that God will somehow 
take that funeral mass and the monies that were given and the prayers that were offered and he will take that off of the debt that that person in hell owes. No Catholic priest will tell you how much time or how much is taken off of that but they will tell you that that is what they are doing. They are taking, so they, is it 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, 1,000 years? Even 1,000 years wouldn't be enough. 10,000 years wouldn't be enough. And so what they're doing is they're teaching their people and they are keeping them in fear by saying, listen, if you pray, if you do this, if you do that, if you do the other, then your loved one will get out of hell. But if you don't, they're going to be in hell for all of eternity. It is a cult. It's a cult-like system because everything you do is designed to be able to overrule the works of what Jesus Christ has done. It is bondage to man, Brother Samuel. But it puts the man of God. And it's the same thing. It's like, you've seen it. You've been to the old churches in Europe. I mean, I remember when I was a choir boy at 12, I was sitting in the nave, and right below your feet are the bodies of people who paid, who were the wealthier leaders at that time, died a thousand years earlier, and the church to this day will offer indulgences as an Anglican church to the people yep. that died a thousand years later because they paid the, the church a, you know, a hundred bucks at a time or whatever it was, an equivalency. So the church now, for perpetuity, will offer indulgences to the person that died and is now buried closest to the altar, lest they be the last one out. How heartbreaking is that? And yet people believe and they trust in that every single day, every single week. You can go to some places like South America and and, and Paraguay, for example, and they hold masses sometimes several times a day, every single day of the week. And those people will pay their last money that they will earn and they will go to the priest and they will offer it to the priest in order to be able to have a little bit of relief from hell. Why would you want to trust that when Jesus Christ has already made the exchange? He's already said, all who come to me, I will forgive and I will not cast you out. Here's my conclusion. Only Biblical Christianity offers what I have told you today. No religion in the world offers that. And this isn't a Baptist doctrine or a Presbyterian or a Methodist. This is a Bible doctrine. A Bible doctrine that says, if you will come to me, you will be saved. Because we have a high priest. We don't need somebody else. I, if you come to me and you say, will you pray for me for this? Yes, I'll pray with you, but I'm not going to pray on your behalf when you are just as much a priest as I am. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be praying. Trust in God. Believe in Him. The wonder of salvation that says, I belong to Jesus. All the blessings that belong to Jesus Christ have been given to me. Spiritual blessings, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that we have been forgiven. And if there is anybody, they may even be a member of this church, but not be a true believer. I ask that you would speak to their hearts, help them to 
be brought by the power of the Holy Spirit to the point where they place their faith in you alone, not in their salvation, not in not in a prayer that they said, not in joining a church, not in giving to the church, not in anything other than to recognize that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Thank you for our time this morning and the participation. Pray that nobody will be able to go from here and say that there are people that we hate for we do not. But to remember to pray for them. That they will be freed from the bondage of sin. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.